4: And when Churchill is asked what the consequence, the likely consequence of the failure of this conference will be, he just utters two words, blood, blood.
3: That was Mark Bostridge on a dramatic incident from the year 1914.
5: Frankly, anybody, religious or political leader, anybody in the 21st century making the same claims would be immediately cast off as a radical, as a fringe character.
3: And that was Reza Aslan, discussing the historical Jesus. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good newsagents or you can take out a subscription from anywhere in the world. Visit historyextra.com forward slash subscribe today for subscription deals, and we also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire, Google Play, and Zinio. And for those of you who own a Kindle Fire, I should mention that that edition is now available in the United States as well. For details of all of these digital formats, head to historyextra.com digital. We've now reached the centenary of 1914, a year that we all know today as heralding the start of the First World War. So it's easy to overlook the fact that for British people at the start of that year, the prospect of global war was not their primary concern. As historian Mark Bostrich explains in his new book and an article for our January edition, Britain was experiencing a raft of domestic problems that were far more troubling to politicians and ordinary citizens alike. I visited Mark in his London home a while back to talk more about this subject and I began by asking him how his book on 1914 would differ from the many others published for the centenary.
4: Well, I suppose mainly that it deals with the whole year. It deals with 1914 from January to December and it seems to me that most books um, concentrate on the first World war, concentrate on the July crisis and the outbreak of war, what they don't consider is not only the first part of the year in which people were not expecting war imminently, but also uh, the first few months of the war itself, um, because so many myths attach to um, the early months of the war. Um, So it's, it's really looking at the shape of the whole year, and you, in, in some ways you get a different impression of 1914 um, in England and in, in more generally in Britain if you do that.
3: Nowadays when we think of 1914, we think obviously of the war, but at the start of 1914, what, what kind of a country was Britain? Was it like this really last Edwardian idyll that then got shattered? Well, I call my book The Faithful Year because as
4: part of his New Year message, the Archbishop of York, Cosmo Gordon Lang, Um, said that he thought 1914 was likely to be a very fateful year in the history of our land. And obviously he wasn't talking about European war. He was talking about the problems that were threatening um, that sort of Edwardian idyll um, insofar as there ever was an idyll. Um, One was the problem of Ireland, the idea of bringing in home rule, um, the fact that that Ulster um, objected to Home rule, and there was the likelihood, the strong likelihood of civil war in Ireland, which might drift across to the mainland. Um, The second thing with with the suffragettes were upping their campaign and and even starting to threaten human life, which they'd always Mm -hmm. try to avoid doing. And the third one, of course, is is strikes. There are widespread strikes. Um, Britain seems to have endless strikes throughout the first half of the year. Um, And there's a sort of, some sort of doomsayer's, um, I think this presages um, sort of revolution in the long term.
3: So, the start of 1914, ordinary people in Britain did they really just have no idea that there was potential for a European war in the next few months?
4: I think in the next few months. No, they didn't expect it in the next few months. And in fact, the year begins with wide publicity given to um, David Lloyd George's comments, the Chancellor of the Exchequer's comments to various newspapers, saying that Britain and Germany were friendlier than they had ever been, because he's keen to bring down the naval estimates that Churchill is bringing in as the First Lord of the Admiralty. So people waking up on New Year's Day and reading these comments, obviously, would have felt quite secure. Um, And... Frankly, they had been subjected to so much fear-mongering about war with Germany for so many years by then. I mean, you can go right back to 1909 and the big um, sort of naval competitiveness between Britain and Germany, which had caused um, great fears uh, among the British. And you can go back even further to the beginning of the century. So there'd always been this fear, but there was no real uh, feeling that war was... was Immediately um, on the horizon at the beginning of 1914. And in fact, um, ironically, at the beginning of 1914, um, people are looking forward to two important anniversaries. One in which will take place in 1915, which, which they're alri- already planning, is the centenary of the Battle of Waterloo, which is the last time that blood had been shed on European soil. Um, and the second one is in at the end of 1914 there will be the anniversary of, of 100 years of peace between um, Britain and America.
3: So so the ordinary people didn't necessarily expect war. What about the people that, that knew more about what was going on? Did Britain's leaders have a, have a fear that we might be close to conflict?
4: No, I, I don't think so. Um, because even in July, when um, at the time Austria delivers its ultimatum to Serbia at the end of July, which is part of that sequence of events that leads lights the touch paper for war. Um, the Prime Minister Asquith writes, I don't see there's any reason why we should be involved. So I, I, I think it, one of the things that people underestimate, and it's partly because they don't look at the year as a whole, is the extent to which war crept up unnoticed on, on the British people and the British government uh, in 1914.
3: And two of the things you mentioned earlier were the the Amunions unrest and also the, the troubles in Ireland. And how close did we get to civil war, either in Ireland or potentially even in Britain, over these subjects? Um,
4: I think that strike action um, was serious and worrying. And in in the summer of 1914, there's this idea that the great unions might form a triple alliance um, and completely paralyze Britain by having a general strike. But I think that that one can overstate that. Um, And it's clear that many Union leaders didn't want a general strike and were just using a sort of bluffing mechanism. As for Ireland, um, the Anglo-Irish conference at Buckingham Palace that breaks up at the end of July, um, just as as the war scenario is hotting up, um, does look very serious at all because they don't reach a compromise. And when Churchill is asked what the consequence, the likely consequence of the failure of this conference will be. He just utters two words, blood, blood. So Ulster volunteers, the um, Ulster men who were arming themselves, um, were threatening nationalists who also had vast stores of arms. Um, so there was a strong likelihood of civil war um, in the latter part of the summer of 1914 had European war not broken out.
3: And so when Franz Ferdinand was was assassinated in, in June of that year, how did the British public react to that? Did, at that point, did they then begin to think, oh, it looks like war might be on the horizon?
4: No, um, there have been problems with Balkan nationalism on occasions before. Most British people paid no attention to it at all and wouldn't have, have realised the significance of it. The real point at which British people wake up to the possibility of war is right at the end of July when they open newspapers and, and, and see worrying headlines. But before that, they really had expected that it'll be Ireland where the problems will lie. I don't think Franz Ferdinand's assassination played any part in most people's thinking.
3: And so, so what about the uh, newspapers at this point? How, how did they report the killing of Franz Ferdinand? Was it dominating their pages or was it still Ireland they were focusing on? I
4: mean, it was was obviously a great shock, and it it was in the papers for a couple of days, but it didn't cause a great deal of of worry. For instance, the Daily Mail at the beginning of July noted with supreme confidence that the Austrian emperor may be trusted to handle the situation wisely, to resist the extremists, and to realise that a policy of reconciliation will be the noblest monument to the sacrifice of the dead. But for most British people, possible repercussions from the murder of an Austrian archduke and his wife um, caused no perceptible alarm. Bloody outrages in the Balkans, after all, um, were common enough occurrences and usually soon subsided. Instead, thoughts of war really focused closer to home and the assassination hadn't succeeded in driving news of impending civil conflict in Ireland from the headlines. And if you look at... um, British newspapers in the early part of July. Almost daily they're providing reports and pictures of both Irish nationalists and Ulster forces mustering volunteers and transporting arms.
3: So you're saying from late July, suddenly people became aware that war was happening and then the war broke out, obviously, just a few days later. How did the British public react to this very swift descent into involvement in a European war?
4: Well at first I think with with palpable shock um, they really can't believe it and what they expect in the first weeks of war is that there'll be some great naval engagement because of course England has its navy. One of the most important things is is the emergency powers assumed by the state which affect ordinary people's lives so on the 8th of August um, the first issue of the Defence of the Realm Act becomes law. One of the reasons this is put on the statute book is to prevent the passing of information to the enemy while ensuring the security of the country's transportation system. But as the year comes to its close, um, the Act is expanded uh, to include a wider range of possible wartime offences and further extending the power of the state over the lives of ordinary Englishmen. Um, And in time, Dora, as it becomes known, which sums up a picture of a sort of crabbed maiden, pinched maiden aunt, assumes control in matters as diverse as a citizen's right to fell a tree, keep homing pigeons, buy a drink for a friend, whistle for a cab, or consort with a prostitute. I think one of the, the myths that's grown up about the, the first months of the First World War is that is that there was a, a consistent rush to the colours. Of course, as was only to be expected, in the first week of the war, there was a rush to the colours, and I think about 8,000 men enlisted in the first days of the war. So enlistment at the start of the war, in London especially, is very strong, but it falls off quite quickly, and there's general disappointment that the call to arms hasn't been received with more enthusiasm. Um, And there's only another rush to enlist um, after a report in the Times at the end of August, um, which gives... The British public its first news of the Battle of Mons. Um, and the Times editorial uh, notes that the battle has joined and has so far gone ill for the Allies. The impact of this news is, is very great, and recruiting fever does actually grip the country. So on about the 25th of August, um, 10,000 men volunteer, the first time a five-figure total was achieved in a single day. And in the final week of August and the first fortnight in September, um, an extraordinary number of, of, of men come forward to sign up. But this, this surge in recruitment doesn't last very long. It, it ends abruptly on the 12th of September. But that still means that between the 4th of August and the 12th of September, nearly half a million men had enlisted. And so Asquith has, has got his first one million men, um, which he had asked for
3: but recruitment would never again
4: reach that peak that it had achieved in September 1914.
3: Now, so something that I think is already now, to some extent, being accepted as a myth was this this idea that people thought the war would be over by Christmas. Do you get any sense of that from the work you've done on this year that people really believed that? Um, I
4: think some people obviously hoped it would be over by Christmas, just as at the end of 1914, you notice a lot of people writing in their diaries saying, well, the war must be over in 1915. But because Kitchener had actually gone to the House of Lords in September and said he thought the war would last three years, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people um, chose to take him at his word. It's noticeable in people's letters that um, a great number of people, certainly by December 1914, think it will be a long-drawn-out affair. So that isn't really something of a myth? Yes, it is a myth, and, and you just notice it being repeated over and over again. So perhaps we'll hear the last of that.
3: And the things you were talking about earlier in the year, these big crises facing Britain, how did did they carry on when the war began? Or did the war then mean that things like Ireland, the suffragettes and industrial unrest, was that put aside to be decided again after war's over?
4: Home rule was was put on the statute book but not actually activated. Mm -hmm. And of course, nationalist and Ulster leaders fall over themselves to show how patriotic they are. So Ireland amazingly disappears for a, a, a while. With the suffragettes, a similar thing happens. The Pankhursts order their supporters to put down their arms and homemade bombs and support the war effort. And so what you actually find is that many former suffragettes are out there handing out white feathers to young men. And strike action also dramatically falls very quickly in the early weeks of the war. So in that sense, the war in the short term does solve three very driving problems that had had faced... Britain at the beginning of 1914.
3: Obviously the war may cause huge upheaval in Britain because it took a lot of men away to the front. It allowed women to take up a lot of their former roles in industry. Do you see much of this process happening in 1914 or is this coming later in the war? It really starts happening in 1915. In 1914, you still get
4: an overwhelming sense that the government believes that women should remain at home um, and represent the values for which the country is fighting.
3: Coming to the end, to the end of 1914, what kind of a state is Britain in, say, around Christmas, New Year, that time? How do the people of Britain, what's their morale like at this point? Well, Christmas
4: 1914 occurs just after the Germans bombard the East Coast towns of Scarborough, Hartlepool and Whitby. So in a sense, um, there's not much feeling of peace and goodwill. In fact, you could say that that really um, steeled British people. Um, in their hatred of of Germany and their determination to see the war through to its end Um, the other thing that people are very frightened of at the end of 1914 is the idea of aerial bombardment in some form because on Christmas Eve 1914 Britain um, is bombed from the air for the first time when a small German plane flies over a garden in Dover and drops a a small bomb. Um, it, it doesn't kill anybody. It knocks somebody who's collecting a Christmas greenery from from a tree. But there are reports in the newspapers at the end of, of 1914, including a, a terrifying mock-up picture in the Daily Express of a zeppelin throwing um, of a zeppelin flying over the houses of Parliament. That, that zeppelins are on their way, as indeed they do turn out to be.
3: Finally, just taking the story now t- to the present day. There's a lot, already a lot of commemorations planned for the next year. Having done the research on 1914 that you've done, how do you think we should be commemorating the year 100 years later? Do you think we need to take a broader view than just looking at those sort of pivotal few days in the middle of the year?
4: 1914 obviously is one of the mo- most momentous years in British history, and obviously the war breaking out in August plays a large part in that. But I don't think we should... Close our eyes to the to the other things that were happening uh, during the year. I think we should encourage a greater greater understanding of of the Irish crisis because so much that comes afterwards is only understood by relating it to the Liberal government's attempt to bring in home rule in 1914. Um, I think we should understand much better. Um, the suffragettes and the British public's attitude towards the suffragettes, because it was very striking to me when people were writing about the death of Emily Wilding Davison, um, which occurred in June 1913, a suffragette who who fell under the, the king's horse, um, that they didn't really understand the significance of the suffragettes or the fact that it was the constitutionalists, not the suffragettes, the non-militant wing of the, of the suffrage mu- movement that actually won the vote for, for women. And then in fact, by 1914, some of the suffragettes' more outrageous acts, their attacks on public property, their attacks on works of art, were actually turning the British public against them and what they stood for. So I think that's very important. I don't think we really understand... The significance of the suffragettes or, or what they did or what they failed to do um, and of course there are there are various cultural events going on in 19 in the earlier part of 1914 which it's important not to forget and which is certainly worth commemorating one is um, the centenary of the first english production of shaw's pygmalion um, another one is the foundation of the f- of the vorticist movement the the modernist art movement and then very strangely in june 1914, Gustav Holst or Gustav von Holst as he was then until 1918 when he changed his name, sits down and writes an early sketch for the first piece in his Planet Suite um, called Mars, the Bringer of War. And although Holst always denied um, that it had been premonitions of war that had encouraged him to write this piece of music, it's a very strange juxtaposition in in view of what's shortly Going to occur on the European stage.
3: That was Mark Bostrich. His book, The Fateful Year, England 1914, has just been published by Penguin. And as I mentioned before, Mark's written a piece for our January edition, which is on sale now and also contains articles on Charles I, Nelson Mandela, the Crusades, and Roman Britain, among other things you can get hold of our January edition in all good news agents and digitally. Now, if you'd like to hear more from Mark Bostrich, then why not come along to our first World War Day event on the 16th of March, where he will be one of the speakers. It's taking place at Bristol's M-Shed, and we do still have some tickets available. Head to historyextra.com forward slash events for details and tickets. Plus, there you can also find out about our Vikings Day which is taking place the day before the First World War event and for which tickets are also still on sale.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster.
3: Before our next interview, it's time for our history news roundup with our website editor, Emma McFarnon.
0: Tests are being carried out to establish the genetic condition suffered by Joseph Carey Merrick, better known as the Elephant Man. A team at Queen Mary University of London is using new techniques to extract DNA from Merrick's bones. Previous attempts failed because the skeleton was cleaned with bleach-like agents. Merrick was an object of fascination in the Victorian period, His curved spine, overgrown skull and trunk-like facial growth made him a popular freak show attraction. You can read more about the Elephant Man at historyextra.com. Meanwhile, a row has erupted between Sir Tony Robinson and Michael Gove after the Education Secretary claimed left-wing academics were using Blackadder to feed myths about the First World War. Sir Tony, who played Baldrick in the BBC series insisted the programme is used merely as a teaching tool, much like the poems of Wilfred Owen or Class Visits to Flanders. The row comes ahead of centenary commemorations for the outbreak of World War I. In other news, the wills of Jane Austen, Sir Francis Drake and William Shakespeare are being published online for the first time. The collection of records, being published by Ancestry.co.uk, covers 1384-1858. to The documents show that Shakespeare left £150 to each of his daughters.
3: Thanks Emma. For all the latest history news, do check out our website at historyextra.com. Our next interview is with Reza Aslan, a writer and expert on religions. His latest book is Zealot, which attempts to provide a historical account of Jesus. It was a book that hit the headlines a little while back when a Fox News interview with Reza about the book became a YouTube sensation because of the interviewer's repeated comments about Reza's own religious faith. A few weeks later, I got the chance to speak to Reza about the book, and I began by asking him what he felt he had new to say about Jesus.
5: My book is an attempt to take this two-century debate uh, and dialogue that has been taking place in academia over the quest for the historical Jesus and make it popular, accessible, appealing to a broad general audience. Um, So this isn't a book about theology, it's not a book about Christianity, it is a book about what we can know about the man named Jesus who lived two thousand years ago. And I suppose the reason I think that people have embraced the book is that this is an issue that is often... Uh, denied uh, more popular audiences this conversation among academics about who Jesus really was and, and what he actually meant. And, you know, my this is my attempt to actually broaden that discussion and bring everybody else on board and, and to really create a dialogue about what we can and cannot know about the man known as Jesus. What do you see,
3: what are the main historical sources that we have for Jesus?
5: Well, very few. The problem with the study of the historical Jesus is that when you remove the New Testament from the picture, we know almost nothing about the man. Uh, I would say that scholars would probably agree about three things when it comes to the historical Jesus. Number one, that he was a Jew which seems obvious, but I think it's, a, it's an important thing to, to bring up, and indeed it is the key to separating the Christ of faith from the Jesus of history, is the recognition uh, of his Jewishness. Number two, that sometime in the first half of the first century, he started a Jewish movement for Jews. And that number three, as a result of that movement, he was executed by the state for the crime of sedition. That's pretty much it. That's not a lot, and I think it's partly why so many scholars have abandoned the quest for the historical Jesus. But what I argue is that while that may not be a lot uh, that we can say about the historical Jesus, we know so much about the world in which he lived, first century Palestine, thanks in no small part to the Romans, who were quite adept at documentation, that if we take what little we know about Jesus and place it firmly in his world in his time and place, then the biography sort of rises on its own, and then we can use the Gospels to take the claims uh, of the Gospels and analyze them according to what we know about the history of the time to sort of fill in the picture, if you will. The issue, however, is that when you do it this way, the Jesus that arises from this kind of historical experiment that I just described uh, is not, not, not very much like the, the sort of m- mainstream depiction of Jesus as a pacifistic preacher of good works with no interest in the cares of this world. The Jesus that arises from this historical uh, experiment uh, ends up being far more radical, more revolutionary than I think a lot of people expect.
3: Are there any particular incidents in Jesus's life that you think embody this radical revolutionary aspect?
5: Well, to put it in its simplest way, if you know nothing else about Jesus except that he was crucified, you know enough to, at the very least, question uh, the sort of dominant image of him as this celestial spirit uh, whose only care was a, you know, about the world to come. Crucifixion under Roman law was a pen- penalty that was reserved almost exclusively for crimes against the state. Sedition, insurrection, rebellion, treason. These were the only crimes for which uh, you could be crucified under Roman law. Now, people always bring up the thieves that were crucified alongside Jesus. Of course, they were not thieves. The Greek word, lestai, that the Gospels use, uh, doesn't mean thieves. It means bandits. And bandit was the most common term in Jesus' time for an insurrectionist, for a rebel. So the very fact that you know the, the state, that the, the Romans viewed Jesus as such a threat that they crucified him for sedition should at the very least make us stop and wonder about that dominant view that I was saying before. Of course, there are a lot of other uh, you know, parts of the gospel, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem in which he declares himself to be the king of the Jews, the cleansing of the temple, which would have been seen by everyone as a treasonable offense. After all, The temple was not just the chief religious institution. It was also a political institution. It was also the seat of the Roman occupation of the Holy Land. So any attack on the temple would have been seen as an attack, a direct attack on the Roman occupation. And then certainly uh, Jesus's comments about the paying of tribute, um, his very teachings about the kingdom of God. And indeed, just the very statement, I am the Messiah is a treasonable offense in first century Palestine. The Messiah means the anointed one. The principal task of the Messiah as the descendant of King David is to reestablish the the kingdom of David on earth to usher in the rule of God. Well, if you are claiming to be ushering in the rule of God, you are claiming to be ushering out the rule of Caesar. And in fact, every single individual in Jesus' time who claimed to be the Messiah And I write about a dozen or so of them. Every single one of them was killed for it. You say there were other
3: people in the same time who were doing some similar things to Jesus. Why do you think it is that Jesus really of of all of them is the one that we remember so much now and that has billion, two billion followers still in the world?
5: Yes, and I think this is probably the thing that comes as most as a surprise to the general reader is just how many other people in Jesus' time were walking around claiming to be the Messiah, curing the sick, casting out demons, gathering followers, challenging the priestly authorities and the Roman occupation, and then ultimately being killed for it, very much like Jesus did. And you're right. I mean, it's a a fundamental fact that 2,000 years later we have forgotten about all those other messiahs, many of whom were far more successful, far more popular, had many more followers than Jesus did in their lifetimes, and only one of them is still called Messiah. And I think that there's a, a couple of reasons for it, one of which of course, is that Jesus was extraordinary that his social teachings were unprecedented. this message of jesus 's about the reversal of the social order that the first shall be last and the last shall be first, the poor made rich, and the rich made poor uh, this was, as you can imagine, an enormously appealing message for the poor and for the for those at the at the bottom of the social ladder. it was an incredibly threatening message for those at the top. Uh, But it was one that had uh, enormous resonance and one that, as far as we can tell, was not paramount in the teachings of these other um, so-called messiahs. But to be perfectly honest, the reason that Jesus is today still called the Messiah and the rest are not had far more to do with what happened after Jesus's death and the claims made about him by his disciples than it did with anything Jesus himself said or did. You must understand that according to the Jewish definition of Messiah, a dead Messiah is no longer the Messiah. In the first century, if you say that you are the Messiah, what you are saying is that you are the descendant of King David here to reestablish David's kingdom on earth. If you die without doing that, then you are not the Messiah And indeed, all the other Messianic aspirants who died without establishing David's kingdom were then declared to be no longer the Messiah. Those followers who survived uh, the Messianic uprisings simply just went back home. But Jesus' disciples did not, buoyed by this ecstatic experience of him uh, as risen from the dead. And one can make whatever claims one wants to about that. That is not a historical statement. It's a statement of faith. But regardless, buoyed by this claim, this experience of the resurrected Jesus, and confronted with this undeniable fact that, according to the definition of Messiah, Jesus is not the Messiah— Jesus' disciples simply redefined Messiah. They changed the definition of Messiah. They made it a more spiritually significant office than an earthly one. The the kingdom that the Messiah is supposed to establish became not not a earthly kingdom, but a heavenly kingdom. And in doing so, in, in redefining what Messiah meant, it was easier then to to preach this new conception of the Messiah to a non-Jewish audience. And indeed, as this movement becomes adopted by non-Jews, it becomes what we now consider Christianity and the largest religion in the world.
3: So in this case, do you believe that the Christianity we have of today actually doesn't paint a very accurate picture of Jesus, the historical
5: man? Well, let's put it this way. Jesus was a Jew preaching Judaism to other Jews. That's what Jesus the man was. Christianity, of course, is a completely new religion, and I would say one that has utterly divorced itself from Judaism. Now, one can therefore say, well then, Christianity has nothing to do with Jesus, but I think that that's a misunderstanding. Jesus' preachings, even in his own lifetime, were understood in a multiplicity of ways. In the first 300 years of Christianity, there were dozens and dozens of different kinds of Christianities, but it's a fact that the Christianity that one can say was most obviously uh, championed by Paul, the sort of self-described apostle, the man who did never knew Jesus, never met Jesus, never quotes anything Jesus says or, or did, uh, and yet creates this a deeply theological understanding of Jesus's words and actions, that that version of Christianity does ultimately become paramount. And that version of Christianity, I think, can probably be more easily traced to the letters of Paul than it can be to the words and teachings of the historical Jesus. But again, I want to emphasize that the words and, and, and actions of Jesus have always been interpreted in in different ways, so it's not technically or theologically correct to say that Christianity can't be traced to Jesus. Of course it can be, but it can only be traced to a particular interpretation of Jesus' teachings, one that perhaps eschews the Jewish nature of Jesus' words and actions.
3: So how have Christians, modern Christians, reacted to the picture of Jesus that you've painted in your book?
5: Well, I know that there's this perception out there that there's been this massive Christian backlash to the book, but that is actually not true. I mean, certainly uh, conservative Christians, Christians on the, say, uh, the right of the spectrum uh have uh, been unhappy with the book as it challenges some fairly basic tenets of the faith and that, frankly, it looks at Jesus as a man and not as divine. And that in and of itself, as you can imagine, uh, is going to bother some Christians. But the fact of the matter is, is that the overwhelming response of Christians to this book has been positive. I get... Dozen emails a week from Christians telling me that the book has actually empowered their faith that while they believe that the man that I am writing about is also God that this is the first time that they've been able to really recognize uh, the, the humanity of Jesus and also to place him in his time and place because look the fact of the matter is is that regardless of whatever else you think of Jesus you think that he was also a man. And so, as a man, he lived in a specific time and place. And that time and place is instrumental in defining him and in in influencing him. And what this book is ultimately about is a book about Jesus' world and how that world shaped him. It doesn't ask you to suspend your belief in Jesus' divinity. It just asks you to recognize the consequences of the most fundamental of Christian beliefs – which is that he was also a man.
3: You're clearly coming from the background of a historian, but when you're writing a book like this, do you find yourself trying to be extra careful not to upset religious sensibilities, or is that really not in your mind at all?
5: Well, I will be honest with you. I'm a historian, but I'm also a person of faith. And regardless of what religion I write about, whether I'm writing about... Uh, the origins of Christianity or the origins of Islam, as I did in No God But God, or whether I'm writing about Judaism, as I did in How to Win a Cosmic War, I take faith seriously. I have no interest in attacking a person's faith. Now, ultimately, I'm a scholar. What I am interested in is writing about what is historically likely, and that is often challenging to a lot of uh, tenets of faith. But I find that no matter how challenging you may be to a person's faith, that if you take their faith seriously, that if you respect it, then even when they disagree with you, they, they at the very least acknowledge that you are not out to attack them. When I wrote my first book, No God But God, I overturned uh, a great deal of uh, traditional Islamic uh, history about the rise of the Prophet Muhammad. And yes, I got some angry emails, but you know, at the very least, what I think Muslims understood is that I wasn't out to attack anyone. And I think that the same thing uh, comes across fairly clearly in this book as well.
3: Just one last question. Within the book, Jesus is described to some extent a bit like a radical or a revolutionary. Do you think if Jesus was alive in the 21st century, would he be cast more as a revolutionary than, say, a church leader, do you think?
5: Well, that's a very interesting and fun question. I guess if I were to answer it, the first thing that I would say is that if Jesus were alive today, he would be utterly confused by Christianity because Jesus was not a Christian. Jesus was a Jew. And he would absolutely have no idea. He would have no means to, uh, to absorb Uh, the sort of the Christian claims uh, about him and his divinity. Um, Of course, as any Jew knows, the, the concept of a divine man is anathema to everything Judaism has ever said, thought, written, or believed about either God or man. And I think it would have probably confused Jesus as well. To your larger and much more interesting point, however... The fact of the matter is is that Jesus' politics, if you could use that term for him, were so radical and extreme that uh, they had very little uh, room in the mainstream either 2,000 years ago or today. Jesus' politics was not about equality. Jesus was about the reversal of the social order. Blessed are the poor, for the kingdom of God is theirs. Blessed are the hungry, for they shall be fed. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall rejoice. These abiding words of the beatitude are often seen by modern Christians as Describing some kind of utopian fantasy where everybody gets along and everybody's equal. But that's because people tend to not read the verses that follow in which Jesus says, woe to the rich for they shall receive their consolation. Woe to those who are fed, for they shall go hungry, woe to those who rejoice, for they shall mourn, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. This isn't some utopian fantasy, this is quite a frightening reality that Jesus is describing, one in which those on the top and those on the bottom are going to switch places. Well. Frankly, anybody, religious or political leader, anybody in the 21st century making the same claims would be immediately cast off as a radical, as a fringe character, uh, as a Marxist, if you will, uh, and completely uh, uh, excised from the the political discussion. Indeed, many of the same political and religious leaders who nowadays claim to speak for Jesus, claim that their politics comes from Jesus, would probably run the other way if Jesus showed up and began preaching what he preached 2,000 years ago.
3: That was Reza Aslan. Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth is out now, published by the Westbourne Press. So that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views about the podcast on podcast at historyextra.com, and we'll do our best to read out some of your messages in future episodes. And you can keep in touch with us on social media as well. We're on Twitter, at History Extra, or you can like us on Facebook. Head to facebook.com forward slash history extra. Plus don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, for all the latest history news, blogs, image galleries and more. Next week, we'll be joined by Linda Colley to discuss the history of Britain and the future of the Union. Do join us for that. This History Extra podcast was recorded in Bristol and on location in London, and it was produced by Jack Fletcher.